Welcome to episode 268 of The Recovery Show. Today, I'd like to share with you Mary Pearl T. talking about step four. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. The main reason I had such a hard time with this step is I saw five. Sort of like family feud. They shouldn't reveal them to you, you know, <laughs> until after you've done it. Because when it says you're going to have to admit it to God, yourself, and another person, I didn't want to have to tell another person the stuff that I knew. I had so much guilt and so much shame. Um, I kept thinking, why do you have to do it with somebody else? Why would you have to go and talk to somebody else about something like that? You know, it's very important that we do that. But we'll get to that in five. Because I had all these fears and guilt and shame about my best behavior. And I hated for anyone to know my great truth. I hated my mother. You know, kids are not supposed to hate their mothers. That's sort of un-American. It may be un-Canadian, too. I don't know. (laughs) You know, but you're supposed to love your mother. It seems that everybody says that. And I hated my mother. And why did I hate my mother? Because my mother didn't love me. And it's like, if you're not going to love me, I'm not going to love you. And besides, I'm going to hate you for not loving me. And I fed on that hate and this stuff. And you see, what I was doing as a child, I am confusing approval with love. And when my mother would correct me and disapprove of something, to me it said, I don't love you. I don't love you. When she was not saying, I don't love you. But the fact she didn't say, I do love you, made me feel that way. And so I didn't love her. I hated her. Um, I also, I had been, uh, when my first marriage, I had been an adulterous wife. I had uh, failed miserably in marriage. I was unable to be a mother. I felt like that God was punishing me for being a bad wife by uh, making me sterile so I couldn't have children. And so I just said, well, if I can't, then I have uh, freedom to do anything and anyone I want to. And so I didn't like having to go back and look at that kind of stuff. That made me feel bad, made me feel dirty. I wanted uh, to do somebody else's inventory. That's always more fun, isn't it? (laughs) So the first inventory that I took in the program was that of my grand sponsor. I didn't like her at all. I really didn't like Ethel at all. And um, we do have a sponsorship family in my line of sponsorship. And um, so I was always taught to respect, you know, and it would be real hard because I just didn't like her. She was sort of a know-it-all. And uh, she was very um, frank, very blunt. (laughs) You're laughing. So every time I'd go to the meeting, I made a list, and I had a piece of paper, things I hate about Ethel. (laughs) And I would write something down at every meeting, something I hated about Ethel. And then one night, uh, J.D. uh, saw me. I was over there looking at my list because we were going to the meeting, and I didn't want to duplicate anything, so I was checking it out. (laughs) And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I have this list of crap I hate about Ethel. And he says, well, in AA, don't you hate it when they start off like that? In AA, 
they tell us that there's good in the best of, and the worst of us. And there's bad in the best of us. So there must be something good about Ethel. There's no good about Ethel. <laughs> I am not wrong. And he said, well, have you ever looked? I ain't going to tell him. But no, I haven't. So that night I go to the meeting and I'm going to try and see if there is any good in Ethel. And so we're talking about anger and what have you. And she said that whenever she gets really, really irked about something or real anger, that she had a lot of problems with anger, that she would repot plants. Because of getting down in the dirt, she could kill him, and she could do this and that, and she could plant him like she was burying him in the... And she said she had done that so many times, she'd worn the roots off some of her plants. So I turned my piece of paper over, and I wrote, Things I like about Ethel. <laughs> Ethel likes plants. <laughs> it was a start. So now it became a challenge. And so then it was real funny because after a few weeks, I got to look in on both sides and I had about the same amount of stuff on both sides. So you see, there was a lot of good about Ethel. And But the terrifying thing was, as I'm sitting there reading it back and forth, back and forth, I had this terrible awakening. I said, oh my God, I know why I don't like Ethel. And J.D. said, why? And I said... I think we're just alike. (laughs) And see, I didn't like me, so therefore I didn't like Ethel. I had found another Mary Pearl. And so I went to my sponsor and I showed her this list. She said, how long you been doing this? (laughs) That's not important. (laughs) And she read it and I said, I think I'm like Ethel. Oh, She said, oh, hell yes, you are. We all knew that. I said, you're kidding me. She said, no. I said, why didn't you say? She said, you couldn't have stood it. She said, God let you know when you were able to stand it. And so I found out I could like Ethel. And I come to love Ethel as I come to like me and learn to love me. You know, it was the things in her. Because see, the things you see in other people, you hate the worst. You have those same things within yourself if you'll be honest about it, you know. So if you're having a hard time taking your inventory, take somebody else's and then mark their name off. Put yours up there. (laughs) Sort of an inventory shortcut. I had so much self-righteousness. I just didn't realize that. Uh, because, see, things were never my fault, never my fault. And the accurate inventory was when I found out that I had a lot of work to do in the area of relationships, finances, honesty. I didn't know the difference between a want and a need. I could see something once or twice say, gosh, that's pretty. Boy, I'd like to have that. I need that. I could do it just that quick. And I mean in, in less than, you know, 30 seconds, I could go from one to the other. Uh, I was talking with a girl on the phone that I sponsored one day, and she had to go to the door. Someone rang the doorbell. She was gone maybe a half a minute, maybe. And I'm on the phone there, and I'm holding, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm hungry. I'd like some breakfast. What would you like for breakfast? Oh, 
I'd really like a bacon and tomato sandwich for breakfast, but you can't fix bacon, I know. I just cleaned my stove. Once you cleaned it, you don't ever want to cook on it again. Um, what you need is a microwave, because then you could put that bacon on that paper in a microwave, and then it wouldn't spatter on your stove, and then you could have a bacon and tomato sandwich. That's right. That's exactly what you need. In 30 seconds, I went from, I want a bacon and tomato sandwich to, I need a microwave. <laughs> So when she came back to the phone, I said, thank God you're back. I just bought a microwave. <laughs> she said, what? I said, eh, you know. But I mean, but that's how fast my, my mind works, you know. I demanded a lot of attention from people because I saw attention as love. You see, all my life I've been in this search for love. And when you don't love you, you really don't trust love from other people. You know, you got to be able to do something. Anything you want for someone else to give you, you got to be willing to give it to somebody else. And I didn't know how to love. I didn't know how. And yet I wanted you to love me enough to make up for both of us. That kind of thing. And I was full of emotional insecurity. I don't know if y'all were, but I, that's, it says that the, the common symptoms of emotional insecurity are worry, anger, self-pity, and depression. There it is. And it's from our twisted relationships that many of us have suffered the most. And I did have those twisted relationships because I'm a real stubborn, real strong-willed person. Of course, I know y'all don't believe that. I had the inability to form a true partnership with another human being. I had to be better than you or less than you. I didn't know how to be a partner with you. I just didn't know how to do that. And yet we struggle to try to get to the top of the heap, always struggling, trying to get to the top of the heap. And the truth of the matter was you could be there and wouldn't know you were there. You know, I was an overachiever in school. I was the kind of kid, I made not just straight A's, I made straight A pluses. I was a class valedictorian of 640 kids. I had to be that in order to feel as good as the kid that brought home a C. I had to be that way in order to feel that. There's nothing. How many secrets do you keep? Remember, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I was always having to keep those things secret, the things that I'd do or the feelings I'd have, because if I was to tell you those thoughts or those feelings, then you wouldn't like me. And you know why? I didn't like me. I had them, and I was holding them, and I didn't like me, so I knew you wouldn't. And uh, we always had that fear of rejection, it seems like. Our fear of abandonment, that people are going to leave you. Well, you know, I love my dad, and he left when I was 12. Couldn't get rid of mother. You know, that kind of thing. And you hear people come in, and they'll say, don't you see my case is different? Well, if your case is different, you might as well go on out the door, because we have nothing for you. It's our sameness that makes what we do work. So when you go into a meeting, try not to find out what is different between you and everybody else. But what is the same? What is the common denominator? What do you have in common, you know? And when I started my first four-step, I did the Blueprint for Progress. How many people here have used that? Did you get a lot of relief out of that? I didn't. 
In fact, one day I was telling a lady that uh, was in the car with me, they'd picked us both up at the airport. She was a speaker also. I said, you know, of all of our literature, the blueprint for progress seems to be the most inadequate piece of garbage for what it's intended to do of any literature we have. And she said, well, thank you. I wrote it. (laughs) And I said, really? And she said, you might be interested to know that when I wrote it, I had never done one. And I told her, I said, well, it absolutely didn't do a thing for me because it did not address the areas. It did not ask the questions. I said, you know, I'm the kind of person you have to nail me. You know, you can't pussyfoot and be nice about asking something. You've got to be blunt and ask me point blank and nail me to the wall before you're going to get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because those things that I need to say, because of the guilt and the shame and what have you, I have a tendency to minimize or walk around it. But if you nail me, then I'll tell you. And my sponsor was really good. You know, I find that the best thing about sponsorship is you don't have to know the answers at all. But you've got to know the questions to ask to get them to see their own answer. And I've always been good at the why questions, you know. And so the purpose of this inventory is not just to see what is good and bad in a person, but what is the truth? What is the truth of a person? You see, because I'd had an affair when I was married the first time, I put a label on myself. It said whore. I wasn't a whore. I never got paid. I didn't go out and stand on a street corner, and even if I had, what the heck, you know. But the bottom line, it was how I felt about me for what I'd done. It had nothing to do with what I'd done, but how I felt about me for what I had done. You know, the lady that uh, I did my uh, fifth step with told me, she said she was a very religious woman, and I thought, oh, she's really going to not like all this. And she said, you know, you haven't done anything I haven't done or thought about doing. And she said, and in my faith, to think about it is the same as having done it. And I thought, boy, I'm glad I don't have your faith. (laughs) But for her to feel as guilty as I felt, you know, I mean, it just never occurred to me that a person could feel that guilty and not having done this stuff. Because me, if you're going to play the game, if you're going to carry the name, you might as well play the game, you know. But what was the truth of Merp, you know? And I was really confused. And one of the first things that I saw when I was doing, I did it. Well, what I did then was I asked my sponsor's husband, who ran a treatment uh, facility there, a halfway house, I asked him, I said, what do the alcoholics use as an inventory guide? Surely it's something more meaty than this. And he said, yes, and he handed me this 13-page inventory. And he said, uh, this is what they do. But he says, this is going to apply a lot to drinking. And I said, well, I can change it to thinking. Because <laughs> drinking and thinking, what is the difference? You know, other than an allergy to alcohol, what is the difference between the alcoholic and the Al-Anon? I have sessions. I have a com- compulsions. I just don't drink. I'm not allergic to, to alcohol, but I am allergic to alcoholics sometimes. Uh, My behavior gets weird when I get around them. You can't predict my behavior. 
Uh, I mean, I have other things going. So once they're sober, what's the difference? What's the difference? And so that was what I was doing. And so I began to, to work on that inventory. And it addressed all of those things, the, the financial things, the sexual things. It addressed all those feelings of guilt and what have you. And it also asked for some good things, you know. And I'm trying to think of what good things. And so I wrote down the following. When I was five years old, Daddy and I decided to go fishing one day, and she decided to rent it and came with us. And so we get there. My mother has rules for everything. She gets the first fish, the biggest fish, and the most fish. Other than that, you can fish. That's my mama's way to fish. Mama makes a job out of everything. She doesn't know how to have fun, so she makes a job out of everything. She takes the fun out of everything. She's your original party pooper. You know, we used to sing, every party needs a pooper. That's why we invited Pearl, party pooper. You know. (laughs) So we're out there fishing, and I made a mistake. I caught the first fish. My mother took a look at it, and she says, it's not big enough to be a keeper. She rips it off my hook and throws it back in. I'm five years old. I've caught a fish. It's my fish. How dare her? I don't care. My philosophy of fishing then and now, if it had eyes and a tail, string it. (laughs) She hurt my feelings. So I go in this screaming coma right there in the boat. And Daddy tells me, honey, come out here in the back end of the boat with me. And as I get close to him, Daddy says, and we'll get her. (laughs) Well, I don't know what it means, but intuitively I know I'm going to like it. And what it meant was every time she'd catch a fish, she'd swing around. He'd take the fish off, rebate her hook, she'd swing around and start fishing. And Daddy'd hand me the fish and I'd throw it over. <laughs> every fish the old heifer caught, I threw over. It was wonderful. Okay. Daddy was playing a joke on Mama. That's not what Mary Pearl learned. Mary Pearl learned, anytime anybody hurts you, do it back to them as many times as you can. And that's when I realized, when I was writing that down, that's where I learned revenge that day. And if I, I do not believe my daddy, under any circumstances, would set out to teach me revenge. But I love slow, premeditated revenge. I always have. As far back as I could remember. Why? Because I got off on getting her. You know? And I wrote that down as my most pleasant childhood memory. (laughs) See, an inventory is helpful. Because never before had I realized where that started. And how that started. It was with Mama and the fish. And this revenge thing was going to go with me my whole life. Why wouldn't it? It works. You know, my next door neighbor hacked me off. He, uh, like I say, I would, uh, this was after my first husband and I separated and I, I was a party girl and I left to go out and stay out and I'm a night person. So I'd stay up all night, come home about 7.30 in the morning, I'm ready to go to bed. Well, he has a little garden out in the back. He wants to till his garden. Do you know how loud a tiller is at that hour of the morning when you're trying to sleep? 
So I went out and explained that to him. And he told me to shut my mouth and get back in the house. He didn't know about Mama and the fish. <laughs> I waited till 11.30 at night, and I got my daddy's frog-gillion headlight, and I mowed my grass. You know? Who can play that game? Well, the sheriff came to see me. <laughs> so you go into plan B. Now, this guy had beagle dogs. Now, if you've ever had one beagle, you know they're barking little dogs. He had six of them, little bar- bar- beagles out there in the pen. And I'd wait till, you know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning, and I would run off my back porch, and I'd run across the yard. I'd take a broom handle. I'd run up and down that dog yard fence, beating on that fence with that broom handle. And those dogs would go into a complete hysterical frenzy. I'd run, jump back on my porch. And he'd come out and he'd be screaming at him, cussing at him. He'd be out there in his underwear, hosing them down to get him to shut up. He'd go back in the house, we'd wait an hour and do it one more time. <laughs> the sheriff came to see me. <laughs> there were several other uh, things that we did. And then I decided I needed to sort of tone that down. The sheriff and I were developing a relationship. <laughs> But I got off on that. I got off on thinking how to get even. You know, I mean, that was just, that was a fun thing with me. That was a thing. Um, I was also a why person. Like I say, I'd use the why for management and how to manipulate people. And I also found that with the degree of anger and rage that I carried with me all the time, people were afraid of me and it kept them off at a distance. Yet I wanted to be close to people. It was like in one hand I'm saying, come here, and then I'm saying, don't come. Come here, don't come. You know, I wanted the closeness, but I was afraid if you got too close, you would hurt me. And I didn't want the hurt. So I was always sending out the mixed messages. And then I, like say, I had resentment and revenge nearly killed me. That resentment, that all-consuming hate that you have for someone else. You know, when I'd go to meetings and I'd, I'd hear the open meetings that alcoholics talking about having resentments being the number one offender for people getting drunk again, I would thinking, resentment, you are such weenies. I don't resent, I hate. You know, resentment is such a mild thing, you know. And I realize it is an insidious thing that if you don't handle it, then you get the hate, you get the revenge. And in my case, I was more violent because of those things. And when you're violent, it has a tendency to keep people away from you. You'd be surprised. that uh, It always shocked me that people would be afraid to get me mad. Just don't get her mad, you know. She'll wreck the room. You just don't want to do that, you know. And then there was the, the, the violence in my own home. You know, my husband never raised a hand to me. I was the one that was the abuser in the home. When he would come home drunk, then and say I told him not to, so he had to be punished. That was just very, very simple. We had developed a mother-child relationship. My mother did not have the ability to deal with her anger. And so I was abused as a child, physically abused. And you know, the thing about it is, I was so sick for mother's attention. I would do things knowing she would beat the hell out of me. Because at least while she was beating me, I had her undivided attention. And that shows you how sick that is. How very, very sick that is. And I also was very dishonest, even with myself, about things. And I tried to be things that I wasn't. 
Uh, at the company I worked for, I was in charge of all the sales promotion and advertising, and I was the assistant to the CEO. And one of my duties was to put on conventions and things of this nature, and we were having a retirement party out at the new country club. Now, there was the old money country club that we always had the Christmas party, but this was the new money country club in town. And I said, well, we'll have that out there. We've never done anything over there. So I made all these arrangements and everything. And the day of the the big event, I had my hair was real long and black. And I had seen a picture on a movie magazine of Elizabeth Taylor where she had it pulled up with all these cascading curls coming. And I thought, well, my hair might do that. And so I went and had them do that. And then I went to Merle Norman and had them do me fancy makeup for the evening. And uh, the girl suggested I put on false eyelashes. Now, I had never worn false eyelashes, and they put them on your finger, and you can't even feel them. You put them on your lid, and, and they weigh a 10 pounds. I don't know. It just feels like they like, So now you've got these giant spiders on your face. <laughs> and then my mother had made me this gown that I had designed out of blue velvet and chiffon, and had a high empire waist with the rhinestones all around it, and it was so pretty. And I got out there at the country club, and I'm and I had told JD before we left, I said, "Do not embarrass me, do not get drunk and embarrass me out here at the country club." And he said, "Okay." <laughs> so we get out there at the country club, and all of a sudden I look across the room, and there's a woman on that has a dress on just like mine. How can that be? I designed it. Mother made it. How can that be? So I made observations to some of the people at our table. I said, can you believe that? That woman has a dress. Well, at least it looks better on me than it does on her. And I began, and they laughed, and we'd make all these comments. And and uh, later, I, it just got the better of me. I couldn't stand it. And so I walked across the room to find out. And as I walked across the room to meet her, she walked across the room to meet me. It was a mirror I had been looking in all day. You see, by having the hairdo and the eyelash, I didn't even recognize who I was. <laughs> and all of my friends had been laughing and carrying on with me, and they knew. <laughs> I just walked right on out, got in the car, and left. <laughs> JD said, I'm not used to you leaving me like that. And I just couldn't go back in. It's like I go back to work. I've got to face them. And, of course, I was the, the joke of the company, you know. And, you see, I didn't know how to laugh at myself back then. Today I'd think that was a stitch. But it didn't seem that way to me at the time, you know. But I love it. I love it. I, the thing about it is if you can laugh at yourself, you can laugh with other people. And, you know, that's what we learn in this program, that we laugh with one another, not at each other. You know, because we are alike. Maybe you didn't do your thing exactly like I did, but you know, that's, that's just the way it is. There's another thing too, you know, I don't like for people to think that I'm nutty as a fruitcake, which I can be, but I try not to. And so JD was, uh, having a problem with one of the cats in the neighborhood. JD leaves his boots outside instead of bringing them in the house when he comes home for work because he's a welder. And he doesn't want any of those shavings or anything to get in the carpet, which I appreciate. And uh, all of a sudden, I noticed he started putting his boots on top of my car. On the, the I have a station wagon. He had putting them up on the, the top. 
And I said, why? And he says, because the cat was spraying them down there, and he figured maybe it wouldn't spray it up there. Okay. So one morning I get up, and I'm running around doing all my errands in town, and I come back by the service station. I pump my gas. I go in, and the guy says, why have you got a pair of boots on top of your car? (laughs) I hadn't even noticed them up there, you know, so as not to appear an idiot. I said, I'm marrying them out. (laughs) You know, don't appear to be an idiot. Let there be no doubt, you know. (laughs) Open your mouth. There's no doubt. You know, just, just little things like this. Just little things. Okay, I think it's time to stop for lunch. for listening and please keep coming back. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.